Welcome to Redemption's Hill podcast. For more information about Redemption's Hill, go to redemptionshill.com. Jump right in. We are in uh, Romans uh, chapter 10 today. Super short reading. Would you stand with me while we read this? We're going to look at Romans 10, 1 through 4 real quick. It says this, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, we pray that you would be with us uh, through these texts. Uh, we know that they're heavy, that they're difficult, that they are um, a source of contention for many, Lord. So we ask that your spirit would come. Uh, do your will. Show us your truth. May we see uh, the beauty of what you're doing, even the, the parts that are outside of our grasp. May we understand that you are good. I mean, we trust you, even with hard things to understand. So we, we ask for your mercy here, Holy Spirit. Draw us near to you. Show us the, sh- the Son and show us truth. We pray that in your name. Amen. So we said um, in our vision series last year that one of the things that we wanted to do is to be able to uh, process hard things, to have a biblical worldview uh, to where we could open the Bible and and see how to view the world and process heavy things with an open Bible. And that's part of the reason we went to Romans is because this book is difficult. It's going to make you think. It's going to make you process. You're going to have to think through things and read and then read again and then think and then read again and pray and have some conversations and read again. This section that we're in right now is definitely one of those. There's some things that are just, they're hard to understand. Uh, we're trying to figure out how do these things work to, together. But I just want to say we're going to press into this difficulty saying, hey, this is why we're here. Uh, we believe that we can understand how to navigate hard things with the help of the Spirit and an open Bible. So that's why we're going uh, through this. So in this part of Romans, in chapter 9 through 11, where we're at, there's going to be a pretty intricate teaching about salvation. And there's really big concepts inside this intricate teaching. We're going to see things like election and predestination. And right next to election and predestination, we see a whole lot about human responsibility and a massive call to prayer and evangelism. I tried to keep in front of us last week that these teachings, 9 through 11, even though there's a wide swath of things talked about in them, we need to kind of keep them together to make sure that we don't get lost or miss the point. Because if we read only chapter 9 and we leave out chapter 10 and chapter 11, what is going to happen is we're going to think of salvation only in terms of God's sovereignty, but we're not going to think at all about our human responsibility, about prayer, evangelism, anything like that. It's just going to be uh, God in, in his choice if we leave it there. But if we only read chapter 10 and we leave out chapter 9, we're going to think in, of salvation only in terms of human responsibility and, and human choice and human decision. We're going to think very little about God's sovereign hand in salvation. So we, what we want to do is walk away from 9, 10, and 11 with a balanced view of, of all of those chapters together. When I say balanced, I don't mean like healthy, fair, and balance is in middle of the road to not make anyone upset or too afraid to, to kind of take a stand. That, that's not really what I mean. I mean balance. We want to avoid the ditches at both sides of the road here. On one side of the road is the ditch that scares a lot of people when we talk about predestination. It's the ditch of hyper-Calvinism. 
It has a complete disregard for prayer and evangelism and human effort, and it kind of thinks of people in regards uh, to, to this robot nature where God just kind of flips some switches and, and you do things, but not really on purpose. And, and we want to stay out of that because that, that, that's not a great spot to be. But on the other side, we want to avoid Pelagianism as well, which is the opposite. It doesn't view sin as that big of a deal. Uh, it, it thinks that our will and our effort is the biggest determining factor in all things and, and really doesn't believe that God's sovereign hand has anything to do with salvation. God just kind of gave a gift and people are going to do what they're going to do. We, we want to avoid both of those ditches and we want to kind of be in the middle of the road so that we are safe. The hope is to walk away with a thoroughly biblical view and a healthy view of uh, salvation and understand that God is probably going to balance some things that we didn't really think could be balanced. And we're going to see that in these chapters. So since the chapters need to be understood together and not separate, we're going to do a, a very fast reminder of uh, last week. The, the whole podcast is up if, if you didn't hear it. But uh, Paul dove into the topics of election and predestination last week, showing that not all of Israel is true Israel. Not all of them will be saved, but that God has been and continues to uh, sovereignly choose to graft in and save, to be uh, some into his family. And God, or Paul showed us that God has been doing this all throughout history, even in the Old Testament. Uh, he showed it with the patriarchs, with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Ishmael. What Paul was doing is showing that God's sovereign hand in salvation wasn't some new fringe idea. It's been happening all along. And further, that God choosing to give some people uh, undeserved mercy is not evil. That's a big thing that we need to stand on. There are some that believe it is evil for him to do that. It is not evil to give some undeserved mercy. And, and here's one of the most helpful things to maybe understand election. Election is not the act of God to reject some who would otherwise choose him. That's not election. There are not people who are running towards God and he just goes, no, 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 I don't want you. Get out of my way. I didn't choose you. That is not a biblical view of election. Election is the act of God to choose someone who otherwise would have never have chosen him. The biblical reality through, we see throughout scriptures is this, we would never choose God on our own. Never. And, and just look at the resume of your life. Do you think you would? Because I, I don't think I would. I know I wouldn't. We will choose ourselves, our desires, our comfort, the ways of culture, the ways of the world. We'll choose all of that. We'll choose everything else. But on our own, we will not choose and cannot choose to submit to God. So God, in love, shows undeserved mercy to some for no reason inside of themselves. Nothing they've done, nothing they will do, not their family nine, not their race. There's, there's nothing inherent in you that makes him go, ooh, I want that one. He, he, he does this, and we don't really know why. And he gives some a heart of flesh in place of the old heart of stone. He gives them faith to believe, and that is what saves them. God allows some to get what they want and to follow what they want and, and, and what they deserve personally. And then God gives some mercy that they don't deserve and never actually wanted personally. Here's the understanding. No pure will is violated in election. No person is unfairly judged or persecuted. No innocent person is given an unfair shake or harsh treatment. Again, there is no person who wants God and God goes, no, I don't want you. You'll never find that anywhere in the Bible when we're talking about this election. Simply put, God elects to step in and give a sinner grace they didn't deserve and didn't even want. And Paul warns us, we can wrestle with this because this is really hard. I actually don't know anyone who hasn't wrestled heavily with this and in their heart at some point went, I don't like that. It 
it's okay to wrestle with it. But Paul says we should be careful. Don't shake an angry finger at God and say, you shouldn't have done that. That's wrong. We cannot, as the clay, tell the potter how to create. This was the, the, the quick run through of nine, all about election, all about predestination, God's hand in grabbing some who would never grab a hold of him. And now after Paul talked about election and God's sovereign choice of his people, he used all of chapter nine to talk about that. That whole thing was about that. Then Paul opens chapter 10, and he goes back to referencing Israel again, his people, the ones that he was lamenting that wouldn't all be saved uh, in the end, and he says this. Again, all of nine, predestination and election. Then he's talking about the people, some of which he knows will not be saved, and Paul says, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, as in all of them, is that they may be saved. Notice this isn't Paul saying like hashtag thoughts and prayers. This is him actually desiring and actually praying and actually going to God for them so that they may be saved. Do do you see the part that we struggle with here? We can easily think that there is a contradiction. Why would Paul wax eloquently in all of chapter 9 about election saving and then say he desires and prays for all of his people to get saved? He's already said that God is the one that intervenes. God is the one that saves. God is the one that gives undeserved mercy. God is the one that chooses. God is the one who elects. God does this, not us. If this is true, then why does Paul spend the time to open up the very next chapter telling us that he prays that all of these people get saved? If God has already elect, if he's already decided before the foundation of the world, then why in the world do we need to pray? Because if God is sovereign, why do we waste our time praying? That's the tension. Right? That's the, the, the apparent contradiction for us. Well, if he did, well, then why would I? And this is a tension that we're faced with. Paul either had a massive brain lapse and didn't realize that he contradicted himself, which for the dude who wrote all of Romans, I have a hard time believing that he is not smart enough to understand that he disproved himself like one breath after all of chapter 9. Right, that's one, that, that's, that's one possibility. Either Paul contradicted himself and disproved himself and stuck his foot in his mouth and didn't even realize that, that he, he put two opposing theories up. That's one side. Or the other option that we have here is Paul does not see prayer and sovereignty as enemies. Paul thinks sovereignty and prayer actually are meant to go together. God can have a sovereign will and we can still pray and those things aren't a waste of time. Those are valuable. This is where Sam Storms was really helpful Uh, to me personally, he says this, don't ever expect God to do for you, apart from prayer, what he has promised to do for you only through prayer. And this harkens back to the often overlooked verse in James 4, verse 2, do not, uh, you do not have because you do not ask. There are literally things you don't have, you don't see, you're not getting, because you haven't asked God for them. Yes, God is sovereign, And yet, in his sovereignty, God has set things up in such a way where he has designed the the means by which his sovereign will is to be accomplished is his people praying, evangelizing, and preaching. Do you get that? Yes, he's sovereign, and he has a sovereign will, but he's designed it where his sovereign will, the means for it coming about, is his people praying and preaching to other people. We're going to go through the evangelizing and preaching part next week. We're stuck just firmly in the prayer part. I thought we would go all the way through verse 13, but as I prepped this week, it was like, we're not getting past four. 
we're just going to camp out on God's sovereign will and prayer, and I don't think it'll be a waste of time. But do you see the point? We are tempted to think that prayer is, is, is futile. It's an act of redundancy. We're all about efficiency and apps and, and schedules and tasking and all of this. Why would, we, why, would, why would we do this act of redundancy to ask God to pray to save people? If he's decided before the foundations of the earth whom he'll save, we'd either be praying to God to save one so that he's already decided to, pray, to save, or we're praying to God to save someone that he hasn't decided to save. So why in the world would we do that? Paul shows us prayer isn't useless because God has a sovereign will, though. Prayer is how God has chosen for his sovereign will to be accomplished much of the time. That's the difference. He's designed it in a way where he has a sovereign will of how things will go, and we get to pair with him to see that sovereign will coming about through our prayer. Wrap your minds around this for a second, if you would, and this is the part that's difficult. Right? This is the stuff you're like, man, I can't, I can't get all of it. And even chapter 11 says, hey, who can know the mind of God? Which is Paul going, you're not going to get all of this on the side of eternity. But wrap your mind around this. God has suspended the, blessing, the bestowing of many of his blessings. Not all, and don't worry, we're not going prosperity gospel, but God has suspended the bestowing of many of his blessings to us and others on our asking him for them. Literally, there are some blessings waiting on your prayers to come. We can get just so stuck in thinking like prayer is a discipline and a duty, and there are literal blessings that a good father has for you that you'll never see until you pray for them. Again, I'm not talking about gold or money or your business working or prospering or hashtag your best life now or any junk like that. I'm talking about there are people being saved. There are things that people will be healed from. They're seeing people delivered from sin and evil and oppression, and there's pushing back of darkness and evil that comes when God's people pray to see that happen. And when they don't pray to see that happen, they will not actually see it. Let's look at some scripture to make sure I'm not off base, right? Isaiah chapter 30, verses 18 through 19. Again, what what was the... What was the theory here? There are blessings that God suspends the bestowing of them until we will pray. Isaiah 30, 18 through 19. Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you. That isn't some loose translation. That's an exact. And therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait for him for he will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he will answer you. You can't wiggle around that. Like it's, it's, it's pretty specific. The Lord waits to be gracious to us at times, and we think, well, why would he do that if he's kind? Like, why won't he just do it? Well, the answer maybe surprised you. He doesn't just do it because he wouldn't be glorified that way. Think about this. If, if you don't pray and just something good happens, you get a blessing and it's given to you, what do, what do our hearts tend to do? And maybe you're like, oh, I don't do that, but okay, I do. What do our hearts tend to do when we're given blessings in our life that we haven't prayed for or anything like they're just, just given? Well, we assume it was going to happen that way anyway, or that our wisdom or our pursuits or our hard work gave it to us. We don't 
tend to give glory to God or honor to God or thankfulness to God and his provision. We don't connect his grace and his kindness and his mercy to our blessings. We just kind of take the win and move forward like, yeah, awesome. And I'm like, oh, oh God, that you would do that. But if we pray and call on the Lord to do something for us, and we actually see that thing done, then we should see that it was God who did it. We see that God worked in concert with our prayer requests. So, and what happens when you pray weighty prayers repeatedly and you see God's hand, you go, oh, God loved us. He listened. He answered, he answered me. He acted on my behalf. See, prayers allow us to work with the sovereign will of God. We get to play a part in God's will, breaking forth into our lives and give him glory when we see him do things. See, in this way, in God waiting to be gracious, this still fits both elements. God's will is to be gracious. That is his sovereign plan, yet he still waits for humanity to, to take upon themselves the human responsibility of the action of prayer. Again, sovereignty uses prayer as the means by which it shows itself. Your prayer and sovereignty are not enemies. They're friends. They're go-together. It's designed that way. Why? So that you would glorify your good father when he meets your needs. And that you would see that you're actually a part of what he's doing and the mission that he's doing to reconcile a broken world back to himself. Ephesians 3, again, making sure that I'm just not stuck out in left field, making sure we're tethered to the word. Ephesians 3, 20 through 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly, that's a lot, than all that we could ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. It is because God, in response to prayers does far more than we could ever imagine that he is deserving of glory, this text is saying. Notice what this text does not say. This text does not say God will do more than we could ever ask, so just don't ask. It would be redundant and a waste of time. No. The text is a praise and a challenge placed together for God's people. It is saying God will do way more, abundantly more. It'll shock you more than you could have ever dreamed of when you ask him. Why? Because he's a good father. What's the text saying? Again, this is not about your personal prosperity. This is about the kingdom of God and the work of God coming forth onto the earth. It is saying you're going to be surprised at what he'll say yes to if you just ask. You'll be blown away of the beauty that he has and the things that he has in store, but you have to ask. Again, this is the combination of God's will and human responsibility. You still have to ask. Prayer is the means by which God loves to do amazing things. Prayer is the means by which he chooses to do much of his sovereign will. Can God do things without our prayers? Absolutely. But is that how he chooses to work with the church in day-to-day life? Not most of the time. Then look at Matthew and Luke where In the Gospels, the New Testament Gospels, we hear Jesus say this to the disciples. He says, there are certain things that will only happen through your prayer. Right? They're going out, see a demon-possessed man. They're like, hey, man, like, why won't it come out? Like, we looked at it. We yelled at it. It didn't come out. Jesus says, hey, there's some things that if you don't pray, they ain't going to happen. 
There's some things that only happen through prayer. And then we get stuck. Well, what if it's God's sovereign will for it to come out, but we don't pray for it? Don't play that game. Pray. There's some things that won't happen unless you pray. So this is the push for us. It's not to say if God wills anything, it's just going to happen. The push is just to pray. And to know that our prayers can be the means for God to accomplish things that we wouldn't see without those prayers. This is why Paul prays for his fellow Jewish neighbors all to be saved at the text. Again, in 29, he's lamenting, not all of them are going to be saved. Then in chapter 10, he's still praying for all of them to be saved. Does Paul know which are the elect? We spend so much time trying to figure out who is and who's not. That's a worthless thing for you and me to do. Does Paul know who is elect? Absolutely not. And it doesn't matter to him in the least. All he cares about is knowing that God saves through intercessory prayer. And since he wants these people to be saved, he prays for them like crazy. There's never a point that you see Paul wrestle with the sovereignty of God in a way that says, well, since God has a will for some things, I just won't pray because he's going to do his will whether I pray or not. You never hear that. And Paul's a champion of sovereignty, election and sovereignty and the will of God. And what is Paul saying at the opening of his books? I pray for you constantly. I'm always praying for you. Hey, will you pray for me? There's something hard coming and I, I, I need your prayer. Let's pray. Let's be people over and over and over. He's championing both things beside each other. A healthy view of God's sovereignty is to say God has a sovereign plan for salvation. But since I am not God, I do not know that sovereign plan. So I'm going to pray for everyone I can as if they are elect already. And I'm going to pray, God, will you save your elect and some more if it's possible? Save my, my neighbor, my aunt, my father, my coworker, whoever. Save them all. Are they all elect? Wrong question. God, save them all. God, save them and let God do his will because he's a good father afterwards. This is the perfect time to examine something personal to our specific lives. Is there a specific person that you are burdened to see come to faith, to see saved? And like you've just, you've been hoping and wanting and dreaming for them for a while. Maybe it's, maybe it's your mother or father, a brother or sister, your best friend or a coworker, somebody you hobby with or just who, whoever it may be. Is there, is there a person you're like, man, I, I want to see them come to faith? Well, the question that I would ask you and, and preface it, I do not ask it tritely or condescendingly at all. The question we have to wrestle with in light of this text is if you want to, have you prayed for them regularly and specifically? And again, I'm not asking you as a gotcha or a guilt trip to be like, oh, I haven't, man. Like, no, that's not at all what I mean. There is something, I feel this in my soul. There's something inside of us that often mistakes a desire for a prayer. And those aren't the same things. Because you want something doesn't mean you prayed for it. A prayer and a desire are different. A desire is something you hope for. A prayer is something you ask for. See, we have this thing where we want something and it's good. And it's not selfish or evil. And we think it would be in the will of the Lord for us to have it. But then we think, well, God knows the heart though. And he knows what I want because he knows my heart and he knows my inner, my inner parts, right? It's a good desire and he knows my heart and he knows I want it because he knows all things and if he wants me to have it, he'll, in his sovereign will, he'll make it happen. And we can accidentally bypass prayer because of God's sovereignty. How many times have you thought about something that you hoped for? 
Maybe you talked about it with friends or shared it in your missional community. Maybe you even asked somebody else to pray for it, and then, and then it hits you. I, man, I've talked about it a lot. I've never actually asked for that. We can go to a whole other thing of psychology of like maybe it's easier to not to ask than to hear no and all that. That's, that, that's a different thing. But there are moments in life when we realize that we desire something but never actually ask God to do it. The same thing I believe happens all the time in relation to people around us. We want to see them saved. And the text is a call to pray for it then. Pray for the people around you. Again, this is not meant to be a guilt trip. This is meant to be a thing of hope of what if we prayed intently? Like seriously, RMC has been, has been praying for people by name specifically for an, a while now. What if we all continued to, to do this and didn't get exhausted in this and just begin to ask the Father over and over and over to draw the people that we are burdened for to come to him? And we didn't give up. Continuing to pray. I think it would maybe blow our minds at what God would do to see over time that he may do things that we would think impossible. We should probably even spend some time in our missional communities just sharing the stories of things that we have prayed for for years. And then we finally saw them come to pass. The other part of this is to pray specific prayers. The first is a call just to pray. Sorry, hold on. There we go. Sorry about that. The other, the other part is to pray specific prayers. We can forget to pray. And then we can pray and like not actually pray for what we want. If you desire to see a person come to faith, here's the thing then. What do you want? I want to see them come to faith then why did you only ask for them to come to church? Like, that's a great thing to pray for. I probably wouldn't stop there if that's what you want, though. I wouldn't just pray for an opportunity for you to share the gospel with a person and just pray for a good conversation that revolves around faith. Those are great things. Again, pray those. Just don't pray only those. Even when we pray things like, God, will you show them their sin? Do you want them to stay in that spot? See, so pray and said, God, save them. Give them a regenerate heart. Give them miraculous faith in Jesus and a trust in Jesus. Open their eyes to the beauty of Jesus and their mouth to confess him and their life to follow him. God, would you save them? Transform their heart. Make them new. Grab them. Adopt them. Seal them. Lord, would you please save? Oh, please make them come to church too. Specific prayers for specific people. Guys, this is really basic stuff, but do you know how much this hit me in the soul just thinking about this? We can tend to like dance around our wants because we're wondering if God is good or if he's kind or if I should really ask or should I lay it all out there. Pray specific prayers. Again, I'm not contending that your prayers need to be perfectly crafted, manicured prayers. That, no, no, that's not, that's not it at all. Just be specific to your good father of what you actually want. And maybe he'll do it. 
While for us at times there can be this tension between sovereignty and prayer, I hope that we can kind of start seeing now that there shouldn't be any tension there after all. Another major realization or takeaway from this text is that we must be careful about our hearts and how they feel about unbelievers. Again, remember, he's praying for Israel in general. All of his brothers and sisters from Israel, some of them are going to be saved, some of them are not, but he's praying for the whole group. And we've already heard this is a hard-headed group of people who led the charge to crucify Jesus. They were doing the unthinkable things, were crazy and they're following the law only to establish their own righteousness, what would it be easy to do? It would be easy to write them off, to resent them, to judge them, to hate them, yet Paul prayed for them. His heart was broken for them. Here's the thing we've got to watch out for. We have to be very careful to protect and defend our hearts in an age of cultural outrage. We have to make sure that the people who don't believe in Jesus or if you're high on politics, the people who don't vote for you or the people who don't see morality like you or the people who do things that you consider idiotic or evil, those are people who fundamentally just haven't gotten the free gift that you were given. At the base level, you were given a gift that you didn't earn and didn't deserve and they don't have it yet. Be careful about a heart that gets so angry in our world. See, election steals our ability to puff out our chest. It steals the ability to think that we earned our salvation. It also should keep our hearts tender towards the people around us. Can we disagree with people? Oh, yes. And sometimes we should. Can we push back against evil around us? Yes. Are there times to speak against the evil around us? Yes. We have to guard our hearts and not hate people who God may actually want to save. Hear this, we cannot turn everyone into an enemy out of fear or anxiety. God wants to save people that will shock you. And if we're honest about our own story, I think we think it's shocking that he saved us. If we regard everyone as too far gone or too evil or too something for God to save them, if our anger has risen to unhealthy places and our cynicism and just our, if we're too riled up, too frustrated with the world around us, I think it'd be a perfect time to ask the Father for help. Again, be careful in a world of hot takes and venom and outrage to not let that sink too deep in your heart. All the things that you hear and you, you center yourself around and you spend time with, those are seeds that get into your heart. Be careful with those seeds because if they sprout out anger and low-key hatred for people that God may want to save, how in the world will we be on mission to a broken world? Sincerely, if your heart is not in a good space for the people around, I think this is a good time to ask the Father for compassion. In worship today, ask the Spirit, we help me see through the Father's eyes again because things are off. Things are off. I'm, I'm too upset. I just feel I'm too angry and I, I can't fix it. How can we be salt and light to a world that we just want to lash out against? And, and here's the other thing, right? You, you may consider, if that is you, there's a really good chance you need to shut down your social media. 
I don't know what sites you're going to. I don't know what radio things or blogs you're hearing. If that is you, there's a reason that you're there. It, it, it may be a good time to shut down some stuff. Take a break and see what if we replace social media feeds and the places that we go to feed our anger with prayer and took out that outrage cultivator? It might, be, it might do something beautiful in your affections and it may surprise you with your anxiety. It is heartbreaking to see when brothers and sisters in Christ get lost in a social media world that is out of control. If that's you, step away. Turn it off. Like, what do you think Jesus, or what do you think it meant in the Gospels? Or say, hey, man, if your eye's making you look at stuff that, that isn't good, pluck it out. He's not telling you to literally take your eye out. He's saying if there's things that are hurting you, get them out of your life. Be careful if your heart is turning towards hatred. I don't want to press too further down that, but like understanding if you are too angry, that's even a cause that you need to stay away from the table and not take communion. How do you go and thank you, God, that you've done, thank you that you've done this, that you've given me a free gift, and yes, I hate them. Those things don't go together. Be careful. The text again, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. A zeal not according to knowledge, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. In our culture, there's a powerful mantra. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. You can believe in anything. Just be serious about it. Yet Paul calls this mindset ignorant and dangerous. Paul didn't question the Jewish zeal or sincerity. He did, however, have a huge problem with their decision-making. The point is zeal, intensity, sincerity without knowledge is fanaticism. Do you know who has zeal? Terrorists have zeal. The most insane activists that you see doing things, you're like, whoa, they have a ton of zeal. And I wouldn't question their sincerity for a moment. Zeal is not a currency that is worthwhile in and of itself, though. Paul is warning us about having zeal over what we don't know, about pressing really hard. And there's this inner thing that tends to, to do that. We double down on what we don't know and just kind of push harder because we think we should. Please be careful about running really, really, really fast in a direction that you're unsure of. Because it's possible to be a zealous religious person all of your life and miss out on God's gracious gift of salvation in the process. Be careful. Here's the problem. The Jewish people that Paul was referencing, they're really dedicated to the routines, to the rituals, to their version of morality and to the law to perfect them. They were zealous for the rules of God to make them righteous. They did the right things stayed in the right lane, like voted for the right people, like all, all that mindset, I'm like making all the, all the right decisions. They were determined to follow God's ways without God's Savior, though. That's the problem. All the zeal in the world will not save you without Jesus. 
You can try and perfect the morality of the law. Faithful in attendance, faithful with servitude, faithful in giving, faithful in generosity, faithful in showing up. If you do it all without Jesus, you've still missed it all. This is what Paul means when he says Christ is the end of the law, the end of the law for righteousness. We'll dig more into the ins and outs of this later, but Jesus is the end of people going to the laws of God to try and get clean. Jesus is the way, the only way. I'm not exactly a young boy anymore, but one one of the things I've seen on repeat is zeal in the church. It's people who refuse to submit to, follow, or seek Christ personally, but they'll show up and they'll give their time and they'll tithe. And here's one of the things I see. They'll come in with fire in their belly and hands lifted high and sing as loud as they can, but they won't actually love or submit to Jesus. Paul warns us, do not let intensity deceive you if you are not trusting in Christ. Do not let sincerity make you think that things are okay. Christianity is still and always will be looking to Jesus for your righteousness. There's no other place you're going to get it. We're justified one way through one person. It's still trusting in Jesus for what we could not get on our own. To wrap things back around, God has elected to save some in one way through Jesus. And he has made it so that his election may come about through his people preaching and praying. So when you ask, hey, hey, is it important that I like pray? Do you want to see the will of God come? Yeah. Hey, is it important like uh, I'm an elder, I'm the, I'm the preacher, so of course some people think, well, TJ can and Gary can and Lauren can. Like, of course those people should preach, but like, should I preach? Do you want to see people come to faith? I think the beauty of this is You do not see any hierarchy. These people preach and pray. It's what would it be like if everyone who followed Christ believed that their prayers and their preaching could do amazing things? I don't have all the, yeah, God does. Don't worry about that. This is the beauty the church praying and preaching can see unspeakably good things happen. As we wind down for today, last week was a text of, of declaration. There was not a whole lot of action points. It was just, this is how God's sovereign hand has moved. This week there is, though. There is some application. So here's the things I want to leave with you. Just some questions, and then a prodding to kind of deal with those questions in worship. Have you been avoiding prayer because you think God has it on his own? Right? Maybe sovereignty or life or distraction or just, you know, God's big, he'll take care of it, has stopped your prayer. If you have, man, then I would hope that you would see this text as an invitation into prayer. An invitation to see beautiful and unimaginable things come to pass through your prayers. Not just mine or someone else's, through your prayers. So the, the thing is, if, if you kind of stop praying because you think God has it under control, here, here's my urging for you. Pray big prayers, pray specific prayers, pray regular prayers, but just pray them and see if God may not do things through it. The people of God praying pushes back darkness and does unimaginably good things. 
Here's the next. Have you felt a burden for someone to come to faith but just not really prayed for them? Man, if that's you, then here's what we're going to do. We're going to take some time in worship for you to pray for them. I don't feel really good about being like, hey, if you haven't, then may, like, maybe possibly if you want to at some point, remember, do it. What we're going to do is we're going to carve out some time after the second song, I think, to just give you a time to sit there and pray. Time's a weird thing. We're going to give you a moment to go to the Father with your request by name before you leave. Don't leave without it. See, I don't see a reason why each of us who are following Christ can't and shouldn't pray for at least two people. Like, oh, are you getting tripped up about numbers? No, we've got to start somewhere. Why couldn't we all for today feel the burden of Christ for people that we love that don't know him and ask the Father to give them faith? God, would you, would you save them? Would you give them faith? Would you give them a, a new heart? Holy Spirit, would you go and just begin to do a work? Yes, would you bring them to church? Yes, would you let me share the gospel? But even more than all of that, would you save them? God wants us to be doing it, so why not? The last thing I'd ask is if You've just not been very good with prayer. If it's kind of the elephant in the room or the, the struggle for you all the time, why don't you just ask God to help you with that in worship today? To begin to change your heart for prayer. God, give me a new heart. Man, I've tried. I've tried disciplines. I've tried alarms. I've tried studies. I've tried like, in my car. Like, I've tried all of these things. I just can't fix it. Man, why don't you ask the good father to just give you a new heart that loves prayer? to give you a passion for it. Often it's easy to feel bad that you don't pray. You're like, oh man, I should, but I don't. And they're like, oh, I gotta go. Ask him for help. Ask the Holy Spirit to prompt you to pray. Ask the Holy Spirit to surprise you with things that you should be praying for. Ask the Holy Spirit to stir your affection for God through your prayer in ways that you've never actually felt before. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you see your need to pray. And ask the Holy Spirit to help you get excited to see the hand of God move more in your life. The sermon is about the ways that predestination and prayer go together. Man, you guys can come back up. That they're not enemies, that they're not opposing forces, that they're not contradictions, but the hope isn't just cognitively that we would accept that God's sovereign will and prayer go together. It's not that we would just think, yes, that's a fact, and yes, that's true, but the hope is that we turn into a people who pray more than we did before. Yes, God's sovereign hand is true, and yes, he's called me to pray, so I want to pray. That's the hope a people of prayer who through prayer see God do unspeakably good things. We're going to take communion. Anyone whose faith is in Christ is welcome to, to take. But 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26 says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Friends, the, the hope is 
that we would take today and that we would remember that there's a sacrifice that has been given. Whether you've prayed enough or not, it doesn't matter. There's a sacrifice that has been given for you and over you. And the hope is that your heart would be stirred greatly by this. One of the things that I hope that we've learned over the last little bit is something is always feeding your heart. So why do we continually take communion? Because we're feeding our heart with the reality that Jesus is better, that Jesus has done a finished work, that Jesus has paid the debt, that he has made us clean if we are trusting in him. So come and take and remember that there's a good sacrifice for you. And I pray that that would press you into a heart that wants to pray. Again, the hope is not that we would move into a period of guilt or shame depending on how prayer is. Prayer is one of the hardest things for all of us to consistently devote ourselves. But the hope is that our affection would be stirred to God to pray, that a desire to see him work through prayer would increase. And here's the thing. What would it be like to begin to consistently pray for the people that we care about deeply to come to faith and then see it happen? To see our hearts pray and pour out to the Father for them and see his hand work. That would be a beautiful thing. And then the hope would be even after that, like let yourself envision down the road. What, what could that look like if we began to radically pray for people around us and you began to be the one who got in the water with them and saw them baptized? And I prayed for them and I shared the gospel with them and I walked with them and God, you saved them. You're gracious and you're good. That's a hope for us. Would you stand and pray with me now? Again, we're going to give you some time in between the songs. I think the best way that I can lead you is just to carve out margin for you. So that's what we'll do today. I'm afraid that you'd run to the Father in your prayer. In any ways that you've struggled with sovereignty and prayer would maybe just melt away for today. God, I thank you that you're good and you're kind. We just ask for your help. Prayer is hard. We get distracted. We get focused on our work and our plans and our diligence and even our efforts and forget to pray so often. Lord, so help us. Give us a heart of prayer. Give us a heart that desires to see you work more. I pray that there'd be even hope in the ways that we realize that we haven't prayed for things that we deeply, deeply wanted. Would you give us hope and open mouths to pray? Holy Spirit, would you meet us in our prayers? Lord, I pray that you would just encourage our hearts as you begin to give us things to pray for that we hadn't even thought of. That you begin to intercede to the Father, that you begin to stir our hearts for you doing a good work. Lord, we pray for that. Lord, make us a people of prayer, and I pray also for hearts that they've grown too bitter and discontent and just hard and harsh. Would you soften them, Lord? Let us see that you are merciful and you are kind and you are gracious and you are good. Lord, I pray that we would see people with love and not frustration. I pray that in your name. Draw close. Father, we need you. We love you. Thank you for your kindness and your sacrifice.